Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Our coverage of the 2023 Oscar nominees is drawing to a close, with 10 episodes already out there for your listening pleasure and two more to go. Today, we're talking about achievement in music written for motion pictures, better known as original song. And I'm happy to be joined again by last year's panel. In our first chair, Chris Malamfi, chart analyst, pop critic, and host of the Slate podcast, Hit Parade. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure, Skid. Great to be here. Next, Louis Weeks, media and film composer. Great seeing you. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks. And back again, Tom Payton, LA-based composer, singer, and songwriter. You've written and produced songs for the likes of Pitbull, Panic at the Disco, Lizzo, and Ex-Ambassadors, and you're working on a solo album. Tom, really glad you could join us. I'm really glad to be back. Thanks. If you want to learn more about my guests, go to imdb.com, search for Below the Line, find this episode, and if you click on their names, it'll take you straight to a list of their other film credits. All right, no more delays. The 2023 original song nominees are The Fire Inside from Flaming Hot, I'm Just Ken from Barbie, It Never Went Away from American Symphony, Wazazi, A Song for My People from Killers of the Flower Moon, and What Was I Made For from Barbie. We're going to discuss them in that order, and spoilers are unlikely, but still consider this awarding. Apologies in advance if I mispronounce the names of any artists or the names of any songs, and my guests know they're welcome to correct me, which makes them equally culpable. Okay, first up, The Fire Inside from Flaming Hot, music and lyric by Diane Warren. Nothing can hold you back, no one can kill you. All right. Well, that is uh, Becky G performing. Uh, she's the vocal you're hearing on that, and she is the credited artist. Uh, Becky G has been a hit maker on Billboard's Latin Songs chart for a little over a decade now, so she's a pretty familiar fixture to folks who listen to Latin pop radio. But, of course, the key name attached to this song is, yes, let's say it again like we say it every year, Diane Warren the songwriter behind this Flamin' Hot song. Um, this is now, if I have my numbers right, the 15th Diane Warren nomination. Uh, as I call her every year when we have this conversation, she is the Susan Lucci of the best song Oscar. She has never won. Um, I will give folks the same potted history I give every year, which is that Diane Warren has been a hit maker for almost 40 years now. And really, when I say a hit maker, I really need to divide that in half. There's the half where she really was a hit maker, the writer of such, you know, number one hits as Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now, Blame It on the Rain, I Don't Want to Miss a Thing. There are songs from the 80s and 90s that you are very, very familiar with that Diane Warren wrote. And then I like to say there's Diane Warren's second career, which is the second half of this 40-year period, where she seems to be trying again and again and to be fair to her, this is not her so much as the Academy pushing her into this category, uh, trying again and again to score a competitive best original song Oscar. Uh, I think it was just last year that she won a 
an honorary Oscar. So she has an Academy Award, but somebody in the music branch has decided come hell or high water, they are going to get Ms. Diane Warren a competitive Oscar if it's the last thing they do because they keep putting her in the category. And by the way, the reason I divide her career in half is all of these songs that she's been putting almost in consecutive years every year in the best original song category they are always for very small movies that very few people have actually heard um this is not like it was in the first wave of her career where she was scoring songs like nothing's going to stop us now from mannequin a fairly big hit or i don't want to miss a thing from armageddon a huge hit now it's kind of like the diane warren slot in the best original song category is sort of this preset slot for a song she's written for a tiny movie. So that's my cynical backstory on Diane Warren. I have less cynical opinions about this song, but before I talk any further, I'd love to hear what Louis and Tom think of this song. I think it's a fine song. I'm not sure how much there is to say about it in some ways. Um, it uh, doesn't have a lot of distinguishing characteristics. It uh, doesn't make me feel a lot of things. I think it is in some ways an improvement from the Diane Warren song that was nominated last year. And that's sort of like you alluded to, Chris, that it is like it does. It feels like itself. It feels authentically like what it is. Whereas our comments on that song last year, I forget the title, felt like it was sort of trying to do some stuff that it was not pulling off. So this does feel like a a Latin pop song or really a pop song with sort of like a a Latin sort of um uh Latin tinge to it. Um but yeah, it's it feels uninspiring. It feels like a lot of other songs you've heard and the premise that this was one of the best five songs composed for a movie this year I think is uh, uh feels a little flimsy. One of the things that I'm really interested in about this song is something that is incredibly familiar to me in pop music, especially in pop music since the year 2000, that I hadn't been able to put my finger on, which is this song is talking to you. The lyrics are saying, you've got the fire inside. You can't be held down. You, 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 all this stuff. And it's something that has bugged me for an incredibly long time. And what I think it is, is that, okay, let's take the, I'm going to skip ahead to the John Batiste song a little bit. Uh, it never went away. When I look at your face, the stealing feeling still remains. I need you, right? The you in the John Batiste song is an individual person, is somebody that he has very strong feelings about. The you in this song is intended to be everybody, right? The you is this universal you, which makes me feel so alienated and disrespected ultimately <laughs> like the idea that <laughs> you're just sort of saying you've got the fire inside you can but you aren't actually talking to me you're sort of talking to this you over my head or that there was nobody you were actually talking to when you said this so i, I appreciate the song for being able to show me this thing that has agitated me in post 2000 pop music for a long time but it also is a very agitating thing to listen to. Yeah, I mean, I think I think ultimately my feelings about it, I think you hit the nail on the head for me too, is that um, 
it feels particularly formulaic, mm. um, but but not a formula that uh, is relevant. Um, I think to a very contemporary audience, this is something that you would hear in a particularly conservative ad campaign. Um, you know, uh, you are brand name. You know, there you see post posters all over the subway. It's like, I am brand name. I am brand name. I am brand name. Um, and and there's a kind of desire for. Uh, it just but to make a very generic concept personal by grafting on basically like slapping a mirror onto it and making you look at yourself and so i think you're you're very spot on there um i don't think there's anything in the production or in the the performance or in the lyrics god this is going to sound so bad but like this this really could have been written by an ai and I don't, I, I don't mean that to be super cruel. I just mean that, you know, in the music industry, we're all getting very worried about what AI can do. And I think that the conclusion that a lot of people have come to, including myself, is that AI will never fully replace um, the really, really, really top tier stuff because the top tier stuff has a level of uh, specificity that cannot be quant. It's, an, it's considered an edge case. You will never hear um, really personal lyrics come out of, of, an, of an AI generated song because they've never been fed into the system, right? <laughs> um, this, however, does seem to be very algorithmic and i i don't necessarily mean literally but th there's something about about the construction the beat the lyrics everything that that feels truly um like it was fed into a songwriting algorithm not necessarily by a a, a machine but people can can employ those as well and i think what you get is something that feels very middle um and I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm having a hard time understanding why this is part of the list. I understand why everything else is on this list. Um, but it also has zero self-awareness or like sense of itself, which a lot of the other nominees have a sense of self-awareness. And even the things that I would have wanted to have seen on this list, they all have a kind of self-consciousness, a self-awareness that make it interesting to me. A lot of the movies that came out this year had a very meta awareness of themselves and the songs reflected that. Um, and I don't think this song has a, a lot of, if any, awareness. And to, to say one thing about questioning why it's on the list, you know, putting it together with the Diane Warren uh, of it all, there is a way in which it seems, I, I of course, um, know nothing about the Academy process uh especially nothing about specifically the people who are a part of shaping the music side of things but the idea that they're willing to sort of undercut the category a little bit by saying no matter what every year regardless of the quality of the song that diane warren writes it's going to be nominated uh, it seems strange to me and uh, now having you know been a part of this conversation two years in a row i it's hard not to come to that conclusion well, I, th I think that, that the Oscars have 
a lot of problems like that across the board where because the category is too broad, um, it kind of messes up a lot of the nominees. An example that I've heard given before that I think is really smart is they should have a separate category for best performance depicting a biographical person. That way, the best performance from an actor isn't always gobbled up by a biopic. And this is kind of, you know, it's kind of the same thing where it's like, I'm not saying that there should be a best Diane Warren um, category, <laughs> but but I do think that like... It would certainly solve a lot of problems, but go on. <laughs> I mean, like on the other side of the spectrum, we have John Williams, who just like the most deserving, I, I think, but still like kind of is a shoe in for a nomination every time he puts something out. I think that the broadness of the category and the lack of specificity and sometimes even the lack of like um, clear, like understanding about why something gets nominated does really undercut the whole process. Um, I, I don't presume to know why the song was nominated. All I can kind of evaluate is like, how does it fare next to these other ones? But I mean, I, I do agree that it is a, that it is a song. <laughs> is it original yes technically is it best that's the question yeah i guess we're now we're talking about best and i i don't think it's best i don't think it's best either i'm going to shock everyone on the call who's been listening to me join skid for these segments for the last five years and has thrown endless shade in the direction of diane warren and say i like this song better than either of you and this may surprise you and here's why one complaint we've been making about Diane Warren routinely getting in this category every year is that she doesn't seem engaged with current music or current culture. This is a reggaeton song by a current reggaeton artist. It has got the classic boom, tip, boom, tip, boom, tip, boom, tip, reggaeton beats. It sounds like a song I could hear on Latin pop radio right now. It, I don't listen to it and think, this is an old-fashioned Diane Warren song from 40 years ago that's trying to sound like current reggaeton. No, and I'm setting the bar a little low, but if Diane Warren got the assignment, by the way, this movie, Flamin' Hot, was directed by Ava Longoria, the you know sometime actress. I imagine she said to her, hey, I need something Latin-flavored, maybe even a reggaeton song. Can you do that? Diane Warren fit the bill and she did it. Is it my favorite reggaeton song? Not by a light year. Is it my favorite song in the category? No, but I give Diane Warren points for being current for once, for doing a song that is credibly, I think the thing you guys are both pointing out, even with the AI comment, is that there is something a little generic about it. Yeah, it's kind of a generic Latin pop radio record. And call me the billboard guy on the panel here, but I'm like, I ain't mad at that. I'm not saying I want I am gunning for this to win, although I will say I've said this in previous installments of this segment. We got to just give this woman the damn prize already so that we don't have to lose this fifth slot in this goddamn category every year. So if if, uh, if voters are out there listening, hey, look, fine. If you want to give it to her this year, please just give it to her this year so we never have to talk about her in this segment again. I would appreciate that. Uh, on a 10 scale, it's a five. It's not, you know, a nine or a 10, but. When I put it on for the, you know, to prepare for this segment, I was like, huh, all right, Diane, you know, being current, good for you. I, I was 
almost pleasantly surprised. And maybe that's because my expectations were just set so low. I guess I, I hear what you're saying. My thought about the current, the, the nature of the current aspect of the song is that I would ask you like, is it current? <laughs> um, I think that there's, and in a way it's the only song in the category that attempts to approach like anything regarding pop music today. It's, it's not a ballad, which can kind of like transcend a lot of ideas of, of what is contemporary. It's also not a retro thing like I am Ken. Right. We're about to talk about two Barbie songs, neither of which sounds like current pop music, actually. Maybe this is the, the issue with like trying to do something contemporary, which is that it is like trying to punch jello. You know, it's, it's <laughs> so slippery and so, so constantly changing that, um, you know, when you say reggaeton is, is contemporary, it, it is, but it's also, you know, I'm thinking about people who have been doing it for like the past, um, quarter century, <laughs> yeah, 25 years. And, like like abstracting it and kind of infusing it into and kind of pushing it and and i've i also see the ways in which the reggaeton beat is used in like very generic scores for like kind of reality tv and kind of um you know kind of has like a a very like music library feel to it fair that's coming from my perspective as like a, a composer who sometimes works in these in this kind of music where like um, it's, it is a, such a solid and, and unchanging brief that composers for like, especially TV and especially like reality TV get that like, when you hear that beat and those, it, it's been co-opted into a kind of generic, um, space in, in, in the world of film and TV that mm -hmm. I, I don't disagree that it exists on current charts at, at this moment, but it also in other parts of the media landscape has been um, relegated to, to some more stock aspects of, of music making. And so it's like, I kind of now I'm seeing like, okay, this is a little bit of a tricky assignment because how do you make something feel like kind of cutting edge and, and relevant to contemporary pop music. Um, but some listeners might have actually heard this sound for, like you said, a quarter of a century. And, and they're like, oh, this still kind of feels like, vintage in a way but not not knowingly you know it's vintage to like the mid 2000s yes it is reggaeton version 1.0 from it is not bad bunny um you know it is not cutting edge in any way i agree with that it, it is it is a generic reggaeton song i totally agree with that and i think when when you have contemporary artists alongside this track who are known for pushing genres it makes this track look very conservative, I think. True. And yeah, the more I talk about this, the more I'm, you know, walking back my deeply. Uh... Don't, I mean, please don't let me talk you out of. No, no. I'm, Diane I'm... Warren, of all people, I have thrown so much shade at her in previous versions of this conversation. I was just, my bar is set so low that I was, when I was bobbing my head to it, I was kind of like, oh, okay. okay. Yeah. Okay. And I also do think if I went into it blind and did not know that Diane Warren had written on it, I would have understood the song much differently, right? There is a way in which that narrative is just sort of flowing through, uh, you know, I think especially me and Louis' reactions. Um, 
And but then I also think that in some ways the the question of cutting edge versus you know it being sort of tied to what reggaeton music was more as it was coming into being is the use of the song right I'm I didn't watch Flaming Hot it's the only movie I didn't watch from the list and I but I assume that it was a credit song as is the case with most and if that were to be the case I'm now making an assumption this question of like um how current it is versus when reggaeton fully broke through into like a pop space where it was not just you know the part of the community that first really cared about it you know its role as credit song it, there is a way in which i think it does make more sense than if it was you know like a rosalia song you know or or whatever else um so i i guess also this or carol g or yeah mm -hmm. So this question of like it as a, a piece of music versus the music and its function, how the music is used in the film itself, which I think is something we talked about a little bit last year. And I think it, I just want to bring up relative to this sort of this um, uh, this question of like how current or how cutting edge the song is versus the purpose of it within the film itself. I don't know whether it was under the end credits or somewhere in the middle, but uh yeah, it's. Um, I mean, it seemed like a pretty good match for a not really that engaging movie in that sense. And I'm wondering to what degree this is sort of a self-defining loop where the movies aren't very good or are small and they're going to Diane Warren and because she's writing the music that they want or I mean, I don't I just don't know how to break it. Like you can't just go write a edgy song. Right. Or does she need to do like a Tommy Lee Jones? Right. Where. He wasn't happy with his career, so he went and did a lot of indie, you know, No Country for Old Men stuff and kind of came back around. I mean, what what advice do we give her agent on this? I also think that to answer that question, I think that begs the larger question of like, what exactly does the role of this category play in like movie con consumerism? Um, it makes sense in a kind of music theater tradition i think um and back in the day when the disney animated movies were like cleaning up in this category and i don't know if this is it uh as relevant um a category as it used to be and so i think that as the movie landscape gets atomized into all different types of viewing experiences and all different types of budgets and all different types of of platforms and all the different ways that music is used in films is like, which is great. I think that the concept of like the best original song, it just doesn't, it means so many different things. Now it, it didn't used to be that way. I think like in the nineties, it was a very, very, very different ball game. Um, I mean, Chris, you can tell me if I'm historically wrong there, but. Let's hold that thought for when we get to the Barbie songs, because yeah. I half agree, half disagree with you. I agree that it's changed. I don't agree that it, this category is irrelevant. And if any movie proves that this last year, it's Barbie, um, where music was vital to the presentation of that film. Um, and it was integral and even diegetic. But let's hold that thought. That sounds like a good segue. The second song on our list... I'm Just Ken from Barbie, music and lyric by Mark Ronson and Andrew Wyatt. Cause I'm just Ken, anywhere else I'd be, is it my dad? 
I'd be surprised if anyone listening to this podcast is not aware of what this song is and what function it plays in the movie it comes from. This, of course, is Ryan Gosling, uh, the actor who plays Ken in the movie, doing a kind of, uh, let's call it an American in Paris style fantasy ballet sequence in the middle of the movie that stops the action in the movie dead for a delightful reason. Ryan Gosling is not really a singer. He did some of that way back in his Mickey Mouse Club days in the 90s, but obviously he's primarily an actor who's moonlighting as a singer here. This did get him on the Hot 100 for the record. I think the song only peaked at number 87, but in a way that's the glass half full because it's remarkable that it cracked the top 100 at all. It's one of two songs on our list from Barbie. And one of the interesting backstories of this year's Oscar race. Obviously, we all know about the quote-unquote snub, and I put that in scare quotes, of a couple of the principal uh, people behind Barbie, including in the Best Director race where Greta Gerwig was not nominated and where Margot Robbie was not nominated for Best Actress. For the record, they were both nominated in other categories, so they are Oscar-nominated this year. But there's been great a great deal of froth online about the fact that Ryan Gosling uh, was nominated for Best Supporting Actor, the Ken character, and that somehow this is antithetical to the very meaning of what Barbie, with its feminist bona fides, is about. Um, and in this category, since we're about to talk about a second Barbie song, there's a similar tug of war between do you go for the fun Barbie song or do you go for the song sung by a woman and much more heartfelt, which we'll be talking about in a, a few turns here. Um, and I, I don't want to bias this discussion in any way, shape or form, but I can make the argument either way, assuming that a Barbie song is going to win this category, which it seems most people are half predicting. But let's, I guess, talk about the song itself, which, by the way, was written by the producer and songwriter Mark Ronson with a couple of his collaborators, and he will be the one to actually take the prize should I'm Just Ken win. Yeah, I think that this song is a very effective moment inside the film. And it was a lot of fun. Um, I'm kind of like so-so uh, on the on the song itself. And um, I found myself thinking almost exclusively about Meatloaf when listening to this and Jim Steinman and wondering about like... Nice. What would it, what would it, what would have happened if they pushed it pushed it farther i think that there's a kind of like if jim steinman had written it the song title would have been about 12 words long yeah that's true i may not be barbie but i'm also just ken it would have been yeah. something like that i'm i'm cool with it i think i think that the the meatloaf ness of this song does a really good job of kind of capturing the parody of a very um vulnerable a dude who doesn't have any self-awareness. And I think like the, the story really needs something like that. Um, from a music perspective, 
I just think it could have used like I could have I I wish that the song turned the dial up to like 11. I still feel like the song kind of sticks around like a six or a seven in terms of the fireworks it goes for. And, and um, because I think that unless you really, really, really crank up the fireworks um, it's trying to like emotionally have its cake and eat it too, where it kind of is the movie's kind of poking fun at Ken, but also kind of having us sympathize with him a little. And I, and I think the movie does a good job of, of handling that ambiguity, but from a musical perspective, I think it would have been much more interesting if we went full meatloaf and showed a lot more, um, got even more dramatic and even more, uh, kind of operatic because I think that, that that's what the visually the movie was doing. Um, and I think the fact that this song charted, makes me feel a little less comfortable with it as a set piece. Like, I think that if it was going to be a set piece, it should be so over the top and so bizarre and so dramatic that it could never chart. That would be like my ideal. That's funny. So my feelings about this song are, it's cool. I really like it. I wish it went a lot further. And it's, it's references to me as a kind of... Um, 80s um, bat out of hell um vibe of male fragility are, are it's a cool reference and it, probably one that mark ronson was very aware of um i just wish that it was m more and i found myself listening to meatloaf uh, a lot when thinking about this song i love that the only thing i'll interject before tom talks is I think it's possible that they very intentionally wanted to make a meatloaf song, but because you don't have meatloaf's voice, you only have Ryan Gosling's voice. That's why you wind up with a song that's exactly a six on a, an operatic scale or a five rather than an 11. Yep. I think you're right. Yeah. Um, I really like it too. I really enjoy listening to it. I mean, I like the music it is referencing meatloaf and queen, and we could think of a few other things, but Louie, I think you're making a really interesting point about how far they push it and there's another aspect of the composition itself that comes to mind with you bringing that up which is that which also then ties into a couple other interesting things I, I think too it's basically four sections to the song right there's the intro that I'm just can anyone else with me that and then it returns again at the end and then in the middle are two sort of instrumental interludes right there's one the, there's a first one that has a bunch of phase kind of going on. And then they go from that. I can't remember if there's any lyric to that. And then they go from that to a second instrumental interlude that's a little more 80s, you know, uh, flash dance maniac kind of vibe. <laughs> and then in that one, there's the background, which is an absolutely hilarious lyric, the Can You Feel My Kenergy lyric. But it does mean that in terms of, you know, um, in terms of Ken kind of expressing himself and telling a story and us feeling like the emotions that he's dealing with are elevating or going into unexpected places, there are two full sections in the middle that do not use that space for him to sort of like expound on other things and go to the spaces that I think a meatloaf song would. And ultimately, that's in service of the fact that they do a full scene change in the film 
visually and go into this other space, which is incredible. I mean, the Can You Feel My Kenergy section is just so iconically great visually. But I think as a, a piece of music, there is a sense of like, okay, this is fun and exciting, but the the uh, the guy that's talking to you sort of disappears in the middle of it, which then, like we're talking about, the idea of it charting and being 87, it's like the premise that in a song that people are just sitting down and listening to, the narrator disappears is kind of strange. So... Uh, I I I I agree with Louis's point about like the ways in which it it could have been more just judging it as a song and as a recording. Um, but I do really enjoy it. And again, we're sort of caught with this thing of what's the purpose of the music relative to the film, and then what is the music on its own, and then that also becomes something that um, Lou you brought up earlier about self awareness. I mean, we've now entered. Uh, a zone where the self-awareness is through the roof and even in the composition itself that it's my ability to judge the song it does feel sort of compromised and that it's like well yeah i like the music you're referencing too and you did a good job of using that music to express the feelings of this character but the the device of it is so on the surface in some ways i feel like self-aware music at its best you can the device is there but then it sort of like props up whatever you're trying to convey whatever the feeling is you're trying to convey this one is so device forward that it it starts to obscure things a little bit yeah right like i'm not being really critical of it but i i do really like it but it's it's complicated it's a complicated piece of music well i think i think you're i mean the 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 music's relationship with the film is a complicated one as a whole I, i think when i think about i'm just ken and i think about another moment that maybe stole its its thunder um, musically was the Matchbox 20 song. I was going to bring that up. Yeah. To me, that's the great Ken musical moment as, a, as music specifically. We just might feel good. I want to push you around. Well, I will. Well, I will. I want to push you down. Well, I will. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's tough. It's apples and oranges because that's a licensed song um, and not an original song. It can never make this category... It's a thirty-year-old song, et cetera. Yeah, but I think in terms of kind of the the its relationship with pop culture and it being meta um, and the kind of commentary that it's making, uh, I I don't think that this is the best Ken musical moment. Um, but that, again, it's unfair because it's apples and oranges. It's apples and oranges, but I totally agree that the great Ken moment, musical moment, specifically musical moment in the film is the sing-along to Push by Matchbox 20. That said, I think where we're all dancing around is that the I'm Just Ken sequence in the movie is one of the great, if not one of the maybe top three sequences in the whole movie, but we're loving it for what it does in the movie as as a visual extravaganza. And again, this kind of Gene Kelly-like dream ballet. When you isolate the song as a song, it's a fine song. By the way, it's a good enough and sturdy enough song that around the holidays, um, Gosling and Ronson and an entire band, you can look it up on YouTube, recorded a Christmas cover of it to give it another push right around awards nomination time. And it kind of worked in that context too. So like, it's a good song. I, I think where we're all coming out is it's probably not a great song, 
but it soundtracks a great sequence in the movie. Um, really one of my very favorite sequences in the movie. And I do think you're meant to sympathize with Ken. I mean, that's where, to get back to the controversy I brought up earlier, that's where the the conversation about feminism and the movie being rewarded the way it's been rewarded is more complex, I think, than social media is making it out to be. Because, of course, it was Greta Gerwig who designed the movie to make Ken an interesting character in this way and to talk about how the patriotic the patriarchy harms Ken too. You know, she wanted Ken to have this arc, and it's a great arc. It doesn't necessarily take anything away from Barbie's arc. And so this song is a key, very important, vital part of that story arc for Ken. But then to bring up the point that Louis was making earlier, what are we rewarding here? It's it's a, it's as diegetic a piece of music as it gets. It's central to the movie. It is not incidental. It's not a credit song. It makes that scene great. But when you isolate it from the, the visual, it's, you know, a six or a seven on a 10 scale. It's not a 10. Um, and so I, I guess the question is, what are we rewarding here? And it's the Oscars, not the Grammys. So you are mostly rewarding the song as a song, but you're also partially rewarding how it functions in the movie. And I think one complaint you can level, and this goes back to that 90s period you were talking about, Louis, was what I didn't love about that peak Disney period, even though I liked many of those Disney films, was that frequently the generic ballad from those Disney films was either running over the credits or kind of the least interesting part of the movie. Um, whereas this is quite possibly the most interesting part of the movie, at least visually. Um, and I think we'll probably talk some more about that when we get into the second Barbie song, but um, it does leave open a question that I don't think any of the three of us can answer. It's like, what are you rewarding here? Because as a piece of film music, it's, it's pretty great as functionally as film music. I think there's also the added dimension of, um, of what happens when uh, like, it's kind of a transformative um, process to take an, a primarily someone who acts and um, right. and they become a singer. I mean, that could be part of the calculus too, um, is kind of watching, is, is, is treating it like a performance, um, you know, and, and kind of rewarding the transformation of the performance, you know, Ryan Gosling, the actor to Ryan Gosling, the singer. Right. Though, you know, I got to say, there's another song that, that I, I want to talk about at the end that wasn't nominated that that satisfies like what I thought this song musically could have been um, better. So we'll get to it. But nice teaser. <laughs> that was my line, Tom. <laughs> this is some professional podcasting. <laughs> we are a very polished podcasting crew at this point. Polished podcasts. Um, the well, and I, I that point about you know taking Ryan Gosling the actor and making him the singer, and then there there are so many layers of sort of um, identity and not quite authorship, but. Right. Ryan Gosling, actor and singer. But then this is Ken, the character singing the song, which is uh, singular relative to the nominees, that it's the only case where somebody in the movie uses their voice to sing to you, which also has a really specific character, which is ultimately kind of pleasing. But, but also, I, th I think it's sort of a, a central component of the stuff that we're talking around of like how what is this? 
song and where does it sit in the movie versus being its own composition. Another thing that's been on my mind is that, I mean, every year or their intention is to have all of the nominees perform the song live, right? Which means that we're going to get to see a performance of Gosling singing it on the telecast, which I uh, hope will be the case. And I will be very excited to see. Likewise. One last thought is that if this wins, and I suppose there's an outside chance it could win, um, this would probably be the most comical best original song win since Man or Muppet, which was about 12 years ago by Brett McKenzie of Flight of the Concords. Most of the winners of this category for the last decade have been really quite grim-faced and self-serious, and this this would be easily the funniest song that's won in over a decade. So if you like funny songs, that's a small reason to root for it. I was, I'm really glad you bring this up. I actually wanted to ask you about this specifically because there are just jokes in this song. Totally. And the premise that that is the case in this Oscar-nominated song, whether or not there was much of a precedent for that. So I'm, I'm very glad to hear you talk about that. You're welcome. All right, that's going to take us to the third song on our list. It Never Went Away from American Symphony, music and lyric by John Batiste and Dan Wilson. It never went away oh, Every time I see your face oh, The feeling's just the same oh, It's never going away John Baptiste um, what's interesting about this song being in this race is that this was not the Oscar race that everybody was expecting Jean Baptiste to be a heavy favorite in. That was the best documentary feature category, where, where in something of an upset, American Symphony, the documentary starring Jean Baptiste and his wife, was not nominated. The documentary category is famous, some would say notorious, for avoiding popular documentaries. Um, and they did not nominate American Symphony. I'll admit I have not seen it. I hear it's a very touching and moving documentary. I've heard some interviews, um, including on KCRW's The Business, about the, the movie, and it sounds fascinating. Um, John Baptiste is an interesting figure. He came to prominence in the mid-10s as the band leader on Stephen Colbert's The Late Show. And after about five, six years of doing that, he departed The Late Show because his musical fame suddenly became the biggest thing about him. He comes from a musical dynasty of a family, the Baptiste family in New Orleans musical circles. Uh, they have credits on things like the Treme Brass Band, the Olympia Brass Band. Um, you know, he's part of, of a legacy of New Orleans music, and he is a musician's musician. Um, I've speaking as somebody who follows the music industry, I have somewhat more cynical thoughts, some of which are expressed in my my recent hit parade episode about the Grammy Awards, about how Jean Baptiste was seemingly designed in a lab to win awards, because uh, he's been winning awards for several years now. And it is hard to be churlish about that because the guy is so ridiculously talented. Um, but on the other hand, um his music sort of is its own category. Um, this would not even be his first Oscar. Um, he jointly won the Best Original Score Oscar for Soul with Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross a few years back. So 
the guy doesn't need another Oscar necessarily, but this would, if this won, this would be an interesting compensation for American Symphony not making it into the documentary race. And that's all I'll say about that. And I'd love to hear what you guys think of the song. I'm so interested to hear that it didn't get nominated for documentary feature. I didn't realize that was the case. Right. This isn't what we're talking about, but just in terms of, I did watch the movie and I think it's amazing. I absolutely loved it. I've always been interested in him. I've always respected him and liked stuff that I've heard, but had varied feelings about his music. So the idea that that was not nominated seems completely ridiculous to me, except for the thing that you're referencing about this sort of a certain taste of that sort of, you know, uh, section of the Academy. Um, I'm so excited to talk about this song and uh, so curious about what both of you think not because I love it, but because I am having such a hard time deciphering how I feel about it. I loved the movie. There are a lot of musical moments that I really love in the movie, including him playing solo piano at a couple of the shows that I thought were just incredible, brought me to tears. And so by the end of the movie, I'm just so engaged in him as a musician, him working through the symphony with the uh, all of the different players, sort of like, taking their input, sort of doing improv with the full uh, group as they're getting ready for the performance. Just I'm so excited about him as a musician by the end of the movie. And then this song plays and I, I'm just so ready to love this song and I do not. And I still feel confused about why I don't. I have uh, a lot of respect for him. A lot of respect for Dan Wilson, uh, the songwriter and producer that he wrote the song with. And everything about this feels lined up for me to just love it. The emotional um, character of the movie, his uh, relationship with Suleika. And it just doesn't make me feel the things I want to feel given all of the components that I know are in there. And this also sort of relates back to a conversation we had last year talking about a number of the nominees about when something is simple and classic and when something is simple and lacking. And there's something in this song that feels like it falls on the simple and lacking side, but it's like so close that I'm frustrated by it because even the title, it never went away is a great title. There there's a story in those four words, you know, the it of it is so obvious immediately. And then what are the lyrics after that? Uh, never went away. Every time I see her face, okay, we're in trouble a little bit. Uh, it never goes, or it's uh, the feeling's just the same. It never went away. And so by the time it makes this promise at the beginning of the chorus, where I'm like, yeah, 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 okay, do it to me. And then it's the, 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 every time I see her face is that feels like a point at which the song turns to like simple and lacking because it's just too, uh, too commonplace, too cliche. You've heard it too many times. Anyways, obviously, I'm kind of speaking with passion because I've had a lot of feelings about this, and this is my first chance to sort of get them out. So I'm really curious to hear what you guys think about it. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that what's clear to me from listening to it is that this is a, a personal expression that is fundamentally different from a kind of calculated market created market driven piece 
Um, and so my rubric for evaluation for that type of thing is very different um, because it's 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 an artist, an auteur who is um, making decisions um, from a very personal place and from a very like um, singular point of view and and um it it doesn't it's the kind of thing where it's like okay look i i don't think it's a my cup of tea but it follows its own it it lives within the boundaries and the rules that it sets up for itself and from a technical and compositional perspective that's a success right and i think that the hard thing about evaluating art is like what do you do when you don't like it but you recognize that it's good and i think that the reality is that for me it's just about asking okay well does this does this live in a cohesive space a cohesive emotional space a cohesive musical space does it live within a um a kind of uh was it made with a with a process in mind i think yes and i think that process is a deeply personal one not a um not one that's driven by okay well can we get this charting or can we get this um can we get this moving um units you know so i i think it's i think it's a success um for the piece but I, it's not a piece of music that i immediately um immediately personally latched on to um i like the production it's it's interesting to, to look at the production when you when you line it up next to the other ballad um, in this category, uh, because it's in a lot of ways, it's a very conservative, you know, performance based production, as opposed to a one that was very studio based and very like, uh, processed and very, um, very, uh, has avant-garde elements in, which is, is kind of Billie Eilish's thing. I'm talking about the, um, the Billie Eilish track that we'll talk about later. I, I personally think that it's it that 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 the piece is a success and that it accomplishes um, all of the goals that it's setting out to accomplish. Um, just not particularly my favorite song, so that's kind of where I I land on it. You guys are winding up on this song more or less where I wind up. I this is going to sound meaner than I mean it to, but I sometimes think Jean Baptiste's music is like a PBS pledge drive disguised as a song. It's all good intentions, but like. And, you know, the pedigree is sterling, but am I fundamentally engaged with it only intermittently? Um, when he was on The Late Show with Colbert and he was like improving a good chunk of the time, I found him very compelling. Um, he reminds me in this category, if I can go back just a few years, I think we talked about this because Skid, we were doing this a few years ago. Sure, He reminds me of her, H-E-R, who is similarly buried in awards. She has won so many awards. She's won both an Oscar and several Grammys. And she has like one album to her name and zero hits. Now, she's, again, like Jean-Baptiste, absurdly talented. But I, I tend to get a little cynical, particularly when it comes to artists of color. The Grammys in particular has a bad habit of saying, Jay-Z, we're not terribly interested in giving you a general category prize but hey john baptiste here's album of the year for your old-fashioned new orleans album we are uh which did in a bit of an upset win album of the year a couple of years ago 
on the one hand, I'm glad when artists of color win Grammys. On the other hand, I kind of want them to win Grammys for things that sound current. And I, I think this is probably in a weird way of a piece with what I was saying about Diane Warren and me giving her meager bonus points for trying to be current, you know, as best she can. Um, this is a fundamentally sterling but somewhat unengaging piece that I think probably would move me more in the context of the film. But like much the way her won both Oscars and Grammys before she'd even released a debut album, by the way, that's a fact. Um, you know, like, sorry, but there's a part of me that thinks that kind of shouldn't be. You, you, uh, similarly, I don't think John Baptiste needs any more gold statues than he already has. If he had gotten into the documentary race, I think he might've shared the prize as a producer. Um, I would be a lot less cynical, but I sort of feel like John Baptiste is a little over-rewarded for what his music is. So as fine as this song is, I'm not rooting for it, but much the way her, I think this was three Oscars ago, pulled an upset in the category. None of us were predicting that her song, um, uh, I think it was from Judas and the Black Messiah, was going to win. This could punch above its weight and pull an upset because John Baptiste has a history of at award shows of pulling upsets. Um, but um, we'll see what happens. And I think this this question of recognition ties to the actual music he's making in a way that I'm also really interested in. Like you uh, said, Chris, seeing him improvise on the Colbert show, you really liked that, right? Totally. You really enjoyed seeing him playing that music. And I guess I'm repeating myself a little bit, but just to sort of make the point, seeing him play piano, seeing him work with these ensembles in the movie, I'm like, I like that music. I don't, there's no qualification to it. There's no need to sort of reflect on it. This looks and sounds to me like somebody who knows how to do these things at an incredibly high level and is doing it in a way where the feeling just comes to me. You know, there's no mediation, there's no whatever else. The fact that he, he also is making and that even that framing feels funny to me. He's also making pop music, right? He's making three minute long songs that are verse, chorus, whatever else, which then means that that pop music gets recognized within these structure or it creates the opportunity for his music to get recognized in these structures in a different way. Right. It feels strange relative to the fact that I don't think that that music that he's making is as compelling or powerful as this other stuff that he does mm -hmm. I, I of course it's unfair for me to try and guess people's motivations to guess other artists motivations but there's also a degree to which like you know what has been the vehicle for music to be the most relevant in people's lives over the course of the last 50 years and it has been pop songs so i can understand him saying like if i want to be a part of the conversation in the biggest way possible that this way of making stuff that these structures would be the reasonable way to do it. I understand all of that, but there's also a part of me that feels like just, just do the stuff, like do the stuff that he obviously can do at, in my mind, sort of like a, a an objectively high level. And I, I would, I'd be so much, because even the fact that like American symphony, the piece that is performed, that the whole, um, the arc in the movie is structured around you still can't listen to that like they haven't released that he hasn't there's not a 
a recording of the performance at Carnegie Hall available uh, widely. There's not a, a studio version of that. Like, I want to hear that so much more than I want to hear this song. Of course, a much bigger undertaking. But I want to hear that so much more than this song. But I, I also understand, you know, being caught in all of these choices about who you are as an artist and how you're able to be a part of the conversation and culture. I don't know. I totally agree with that sentiment. This is the difficult thing about awards um, and artistry. I think that, you know, Chris, you bring up the the, the word contemporary and, and being awarded for, for contemporary work. I, I understand that. But I also think that, again, that contemporary is such a slippery and and fleeting concept that, you know, something that, that I think about a lot is, you know, what is the goal? What's the goal of of like making art? Um, and, and what's what's the end that that everyone's after? And I think ultimately, like the really, really, really good people come to the the understanding that. um it's it's about being as you as you can possibly be and some people get really lucky and that you is consistently contemporary <laughs> and some people get pigeonholed into an era um for whatever reason um and i think that i think it's just tough when you're dealing with people who are singular who are people who like have become the most themselves that they could possibly be. And they've worked really hard at becoming themselves. And it just happens that it's tied into a time and a place. And so, you know, all this is pretty, pretty abstract, but that's, that's something that I think about when I think about this artist. And I think about this artist in the context of awards, because it, it's and the same thing with with the hype machine of of contemporary pop music is like the stuff that that lasts is very different from the stuff that gets pushed the stuff that's new um it's it's easier to sell something that's new um because that's the that's what differentiates it it's hey this is new from last year um so you know i grapple with that it's like this this song does not feel new it also does not feel old it just feels very him um, and I think that at the end of the day, that's like kind of the goal. It just turns out that that's, it's not really what I particularly like feel emotionally attached to. Um, I just think it's, uh, it's, it's just really tough, um, in the context of, of giving out statues, you know? I also really enjoyed the documentary. Chris, I'm surprised you haven't seen it. I think it's, and that's uh, interesting. It's on my list. Tom to say that seeing the other music he does makes you question the song a little more for me not coming from the music space it's the flip where seeing the movie and uh not that he necessarily needed humanizing but that uh he's such a real person in the movie and his life and his talent and such that i like the song more thinking about the documentary that makes a lot of sense and i you know i, I think that that this is potentially just our our fields coming to bear you know that there's a, a way in which I'm so ridiculously critical about some of these things, you know, and I think that if I was 33% less critical, I, I would, I, I would share more of that feeling with you, Skid. So I, I am conscious of like, and in some ways it's, you know, a blessing and a curse to spend so much time doing something 
that you can see all the little pieces, you know, and then there's the flip side of like, you can't turn it off. You can't just enjoy something because I think you're absolutely right relative to what the movie is. And then for that, that song to land at the end of it, it's like, yeah, this is all of this is, is working, you know, but then it just starts to crank in where I'm like, well, what you know, all of the, the analytical stuff is hard to turn off. Well, and make no mistake, all three of you have been invited here because of your criticality. Like, so, you know, don't don't deny that. Lean into it. That's what we're doing here at Bull of the Line. The fourth of our nominees is Wazazi, a song for my people from Killers of the Flower Moon, music and lyric by Scott George. things off this time so i'm not normally the one that for these episodes does the research but i was curious about the title of this song and to my understanding was aze and again i may still be mispronouncing that but it's a self-referential term within the osage language for the osage people themselves well how did wasazi become osage I did a little research, found this site called librarything.com. And in fact, there was a discussion of this about, it's over 10 years ago. But basically, the hypothesis was that when French explorers first encountered the Osage people, they heard them call themselves Wazaze, but then wrote it down in French. While I'm not a French speaker, I understand that they probably use letters like O-U-A-S-A-G-E, which in French would be pronounced closer to Wazaze. When English speakers saw it, they pronounced it in English, simplified it to Osage, and well, there you go. That's where we are. So to make a, another pop culture analogy, it's a little like the uh, plot point at the beginning of The Godfather Part Two, where Don Corleone becomes Don Corleone because he's from Corleone and he walks through Elvis Island and they can't figure out his actual name. Yes. And hence the, the Osage tribe was, you know, anglicized in a similar fashion. That's what I read. Of course, if people know better or want to tell me that uh, I don't know what I'm talking about, I would be happy to hear that. In the meantime, though, uh, the song, which uh, does play over the closing credits of Killers of the Flower Moon, has made our list. It has indeed. Um, what's interesting about this, and we discussed this in passing in our best score conversation was that the score for Killers of the Flower Moon, which is otherwise done by Robbie Robertson, formerly of the band, the late Robbie Robertson, may he rest in peace. Um, this is the final track on that score album, and it is the final piece of music in the movie. Um, and I, I, must, I must say, I think the, the very memorable way this song is used at the end of the movie with this brilliant aerial shot over a drum circle, a literal drum circle, uh, playing this out. Um, it's really quite powerful. And, um, you know, it, this is a very cliched term, but it could not be more authentic to use that word. Um, and, uh, you know, even though Robertson does, himself does not play on the song, obviously, he was instrumental as an indigenous man himself um, from the 
Canadian Six Nations. Um, he was instrumental in choosing pieces of music like this. And uh, I think, if anything, the fact that this made the best original song race, which was something of a surprise, not not everybody was expecting it to make the, the final five, shows some depth for Killers of the Flower Moon in the Oscar race this year. So that's impressive in and of itself. Yeah, I think from a musical and sonic perspective, it's like fantastic to hear this in the in the set of nominees. I think that in a sea of, you know, very same production and same um in a relationship to Western pop music, it's just really good for audiences to hear new things, different things. Um and I think that, you know, again, like we talked about how do you evaluate uh, a piece of music? You know, you kind of have to ask the question, um, well, what are the, first of all, you know, do you like it? Do you not like it? Is that, that's a personal opinion, but then the the rest is like, does this um, satisfy the, the, the rules that it sets up and, and those, the, the musical rules for this piece of music are so profoundly different from that of a Western pop song that, you know, I just think that it's, it's a very, very good thing for people to not be able to, uh, to expect to hear something when they're told, here's a collection of songs um, that are nominated for best song. Uh, and to be able to hear something that is very different and very, um, uh, it's performed different, it's written different, everything about it is different from the Western pop music that makes up the rest of this category. Overall, net fantastic for um, for listeners and and for the 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 category. Uh, yeah, I love this uh, this sort of framework that you're you're speaking in, Louis of what are the goals set out by the people making the thing and does it does it feel like it is in conversation does it feel like that that is such a, a great way to look at all art and especially these songs and there is a way one thing i've sort of been thinking about with all these songs is like what is the the feeling intended it's sort of a, an offshoot of what you're talking about what is the feeling intended and then what are the formal aspects that are used to try and convey those feelings and this piece of music the feeling feels like a laser beam in some ways almost compared to some of the other stuff where there's so much artifice there are so many strategies there's so much technical stuff and to to hear it what is i think quite close to a field recording of a group of people performing all together it just like shoots through in this really amazing way. I mean, it's also listening to the songs back to back can be pretty dizzying because I think on one of my listens, uh, listen throughs, I listened to Wazaze and then I listened to I'm Just Ken and listening to those two things, just the the sensory sort of uh, felt experience of that is just so crazy and fun and strange. Um, I think also, you know, just thinking about about that formal side, we could just go through every aspect of this piece of music of this recording and point out how it is so different from, you know, 
contemporary pop music in terms of a group of people singing all together in terms of the instrumentation in terms of one thing that jumped out to me was um being recorded to a metronome or not all of the other songs are on this sort of clock time which we're all just so used to in terms of so much of the music that we hear but this is free this is people just playing with each other and the moments the the one there's one big drum that comes in so loud on the recording and always is sort of like pushing the pace is always a little bit ahead of where everybody else is so just the the you know just going through all of these different different things it, it is different in all ways but it the character of it being art of it being uh this vessel within which emotion is poured and then we go and you know drink of it to continue the metaphor i don't know it's just so to to hear it placed with these other songs is uh is super fascinating and also you know i i read a couple articles with uh um interviewing scott george the composer of the song and him sort of reflecting on what his life has been that he has been a singer and a drummer um since a very young age and that ultimately any of the osage music is not written down it is conveyed from generation to generation and then memorized and the idea that that tradition ultimately what we're hearing is something that is like thousands of years in this sort of like carrying on all of the, the to just be talking about music and to be talking about these ideas versus talking about I'm just Ken where we're saying like ah meatloaf and queen and other things and that they are on the backs of music from the 50s and everything about it is just it's such a different conversation in a really exciting way again to see all these things next to each other but it does it does make me start to feel like some of the things that even I've talked about uh, today on the call have been from, like I said, uh, with the John Batiste song towards the end of that conversation, me being critical as like your work and songwriting and whatever else. And this does, it, 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 it feels required to appreciate this as just somebody who cares about art and as a person, right? This is, this is working on a different level. It's working on different parts of who we are than all the other songs. I basically co-sign everything you guys are saying about the strength of this as a piece of music and as a field recording and as a complete change of pace in this category. And that's why I'm so glad it's here. I mean, thinking about it functionally in terms of why it's here, you could liken it. And this is a, a bit of apples and oranges or apples and pears, let's say. But last year's winner in this category was Natu Natu from the song, R, excuse me, the movie RRR, um, which was... Indian as in South Asian, not American Indian, but was the outlier in the category and wound up taking the prize. And I don't think any of us were that surprised that it won. I think it would be a bigger surprise if this won this year. But I like that the category is making room for things that are not in the Western pop tradition and compelling folks to think differently about what a best original song can be. And if anything, this song only pushes that further. Um, and it, I would not be bothered if there were an upset and this were to take it. Because again, I I found that moment in the movie when the movie wraps up um, just so powerful. Um, and seeing that drum circle 
and the the concepts of forgive the cliche the circle of life and you know the way the plot of the movie came back around on itself um i found it very compelling and moving and um exactly right and uh if we're rewarding that in terms of its function in the film it comes from um this this richly deserves to be in the category and even could deserve the prize well another thing interesting for you to to bring up not to not to from last year songs not in english right right ultimately the academy awards being an american uh award english being the language you know uh whatever however we want to describe it that the idea that a song and this also makes me sort of think about some of the other things we've been talking about relative to what gets placed into this category how it has changed over time and and the the grammys of course uh are subject to this as well, where you have song of the year, the composition and the record of the year, the recording of that composition. I think of a decent shorthand way to put it. And this being song of the year, and then only the writers are nominated versus people performing. Becky G is not nominated for fire and Stop. the Diane Warren song, right? Which then is also tying us back into what's the function of the song within the film so it's just the song as it's composed that's being honored within the function of the film which feels pretty strange and then especially relative to this where like okay the the composition of this versus the recording of it versus what it means for you know osage tribal singers to be singing this song all feels uh quite complicated um, I lost my thought. Let me get back to it. Sorry, one second. No, I think you're driving at a really good point, honestly, about how performance is vital to the piece itself. Right. S sorry. No, no, that's totally that that that's great. That helps me get get back. And right, the the performance of the piece being vital to what the experience of the quote unquote song is, song recording, film, all these layers of stuff. And then the fact that this song, the composition, as you would write it down, is not in English, right? Is not in a language that I would imagine the uh, majority of people that watch the movie that listen to the song could understand. All of that, I think, is really interesting. And like you said, Chris, kind of opening up the category in a way where it's saying, like, here is music in all these different ways besides what it is for us to have pop songs speaking in English at us all the time. Sure. And it does also sort of give me, it makes me think about my own sort of listening habits, um, which have more and more in my life tended towards instrumental music, or in some cases towards music where the lyrics, the language, the narrator speaking to you isn't taking up all of the space. There's something really powerful about that. Um, that's absolutely going on with this song where it feels like there's more space for me to sort of be there with the music as opposed to the narrator jumping through and telling me what I'm supposed to feel. Of course, it's just a, uh, a function of, of me not understanding Osage, the song being in a language that I don't understand, but there's, there's something about the song that's swimming around and all this stuff in a way that I think is really compelling. I think also too, I mean, you're making some great points that this, forgive me if this is just overly obvious, but you know, one of the things that, uh i'll say contemporary but i it, that could really go back as far as you know like 
the 1700s. Contemporary, like Western European um, music, um, it's kind of defined in my mind by the the lines that it draws in the process of the music making. So the line between who is the composer and who is the performer, the line between uh, uh, words and music, the line between um, is how do you consume this? Is it a, in a in a performance setting, or is it are you an audience member or are you a participant? Everywhere else in the world, those lines are so blurred that it's almost impossible to to really pick apart the concept of authorship from um, participation in the ensemble, from what is composed versus what is improvised versus what is um, kind of taught in an oral tradition, you know, and even something that's like you can't, a lot of music um, throughout history and throughout the world, you can't really pick it apart from like the movement that is associated with the music making, the dancing or the um any type of of bodily movement that's that's uh that's associated with it that's really cool i think that you know especially in an award ceremony in an award context where we are assigning um accolades to a specific aspect of a specific process to, to specific people it really breaks down in my mind um when you are uh, presented with a piece of music that comes from a different tradition, frankly. Um, and I think that, again, it's just really, really, really good for audiences, um, especially Western audiences, to be presented with a different definition of what a best original song, all those things in, in quotes for this, um, you know, in terms of, all of that stuff needs to be uh, redefined. It's really good for audiences to 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 be surprised at what they're hearing, because anytime a listener expands their definition of what music is, I think like it's that's the tide that raises all all ships. Um, you know, I think music is a lot like food, where you have a, most people have a very narrow definition of what it is and what they like. And it's purely based on what they were fed as children. <laughs> and, um, and, and if you get fed something that you don't like, it's a visceral, I, that's disgusting reaction. Um, but it's something that you can, like your, your tastes can expand and it can change. And, and it just is a matter of expanding the definition of what is like, what your tastes can, um, can be acclimated to. And I, I think that for something as tied into, um, like Western music and, and Hollywood filmmaking as the Academy Awards is, it's really cool to see this piece of music included in, in the, in the category. Our fifth song is what was I made for from Barbie music and lyric by Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell. I used to float now I just fall down I used to know But I'm not sure now What I was made for 
Okay, so speaking of artists that are perhaps over-rewarded, uh, this is Billie Eilish, the uh, hit-making uh, singer-songwriter who, with her brother Phineas O'Connell, has written a slew of hits over the last five years. She, speaking of the Grammys, has won either song, record, or album of the year three out of the last five years. She already has an Oscar. Uh, she and Phineas won for No Time to Die, the last James Bond film, or most recent James Bond film. Um, so were they to win, and they are the heavy, heavy, heavy favorite in the competition this year, this would be their second Oscar in just three years, which is mind-blowing. Um, there is a side of me that would like to be cynical about everything I just said, but I think it's a damn good song. Um, it has swept all of the precursor prizes. It took the Golden Globe. It just won Song of the Year at the Grammys a week, week and a half ago. And uh, it is a... In terms of Barbie, since we've been talking about this soundtrack, it is a big change of pace on that soundtrack. Nothing else on the soundtrack sounds like this song. And there's even a slight cynical side of me that wants to throw shade at that, that like, oh, okay, this is the ballad. We needed a ballad in this movie. And of course, we're going to give the prize to the ballad. But even among movie ballads, it's quite exceptional. It's, it's, it's a song about a doll that questions... The meaning of life, uh, which is not far removed from, you know, what Barbie itself is about. So, yeah, I'll just throw all that on the table and we can come back uh, to, you know, whether or not this is going to take the prize. But I'd be curious to know what you guys think of the song. I agree. I love it. I love the song, which I think also at this point in my life, the premise of me just flat out being able to say that I love a ballad by a massive pop star. Like I'm going to assume relative to my own uh, capacity for cynicism that like, that's not going to be the case, but I do just love the song. And the first time I heard it was in the movie and relative to your point, Chris, about it feeling so different from the rest of the soundtrack, my experience of it within the film was immediately when the piano started up, I was like, Ooh, what's this? Like, this feels so different. What's going on, you know, just musically in terms of the compositions, in terms of the recordings, they've got me in such a different space. And then this hits. And also I'm just a sucker for Sati in general. And it has big time Gymnepides sort of vibes to. Oh, I love, I love that piece. Yeah. I'm right there with you. Um, So everything about it, I'm just like, yep, you did it. And there's almost something that's comforting to me about that, that, for me to be able to just love something that is, you know, uh, performed by a big pop star in a big movie, then I'm just like, oh yeah, this is good. This thing that is very successful and popular, I legitimately like as a piece of art. Um, this also is more cynicism because the uh, the implication there is that it's a rarity for that to happen to me at this point in my life versus when I was a kid and I was just consuming sort of mainstream stuff and just loving it left and right. Um, so I really, really like it. And I'm your point about, right. This being from the perspective of a doll going back to, I'm just Ken. I'm just Ken is sung by the character, right? It's Ryan Gosling as the actor singing as the character. This is an instance of Billie Eilish, the, the pop star, the singer, singing from the perspective of Barbie on her behalf. But one of the things that happens almost immediately is that it does, it feels legitimate for Billie Eilish to be singing these lyrics too, relative to the experience of 
somebody who has been commodified, somebody who has entered into this space of being known by a bunch of people you don't know. So it feels legitimate for her to be singing the lyrics as well, even though they do describe literally what has happened in the movie. And then as a listener, it also feels legitimate to be asking that for any individual person to be asking that question. What, you know, the meaning of life, why am I here? The fact that the song works across those three levels, starting from the character to then the uh, person who sings it, then to the listener, I is just so pleasing to me, especially along these lines of self-awareness and meta uh, meta stuff that we've been talking about, right? I'm gushing about the song, I guess. I didn't fully realize that I was going to gush about the song, but that is how I feel about it. Yeah, I think that um, it's a gorgeous like, performance and super cool production. And, you know, I think that how they, just from a technical perspective, how they, I say they, I'm talking about um, Phineas as well, um, and how they work as a team how they manage to mix her voice and process her voice is like the, that's the secret sauce for her whole phenomenon. But I think that what's interesting to me about this song is the kind of dark arts alchemy that is music plus moving image um, that it's really hard to put your finger on. Tom, you kind of started to talk about this and I thought you were going there, but I'm, I'm going to piggyback off you for a bit here. The, when you look at this piece through the lens of the other nominated song from the film, I'm just Ken, it is a literal address to camera from a character that is supposed to deepen our understanding of the character and also supposed to, you know, um, yeah, highlight and in, and in some ways like highlight Ryan Gosling's performance in in the the movie making experience this song however as a piece of music that is played over montage from the perspective of margot robbie as barbie actually made me aware that margot robbie's performance was far superior to ryan gosling's in a way that is kind of like a somersault of what's expected you think oh well this is a, a, an, an actor really showing us their their singing chops on screen wow they're doing a lot um let me just like give them props in a way separating the music making from the performance by using another artist to convey the um, interiority of Margot Robbie's performance really highlighted just how good that performance was. And I think that that's the kind of like one plus one equals like three mathematics that is hard to pin down when you're talking about like, how does music plus moving image create magic? It's not always clear. Um, but I think it's it's an interesting, especially with the the meta narrative that Chris was talking about about how Margot Robbie wasn't nominated for best performance, but Ken was, and and they both have this important musical moment. Ken Ken is allowed to sing his, and and Barbie gets her sung for her. I think in a in an ironic twist, this song is more effective. It is better, and it actually tells the audience, especially it told me that Margot Robbie's pulling off way more 
than Ryan Gosling is. Uh, I don't know if everyone is going to like feel that, but I do think that the the song helps um, highlight that that uh, that performance in a way that is really uh, tricky and and cool. That's such a cool point because it it really is to sort of like say another piece of what I think you're talking about. There's a way in which that song is such an incredible summary of what you've been seeing happen. You know, like there's a way in which it, it sort of like puts in this, it, it, it summarizes what you've been seeing happen and it also does it in a different medium, right? It, it gives song, it gives melody, it gives sort of sonic character to what you've been seeing Margot Robbie do with the character, what you've been seeing the character do. Yeah, and I also think that um, when someone tells you how they're feeling, that is a kind of intimate act. But when you project yourself onto them, and and you share a sense of um, empathy, um, that's even more intimate. And I think that that all of us kind of having Billie Eilish in our heads, and also in Barbie's head, and in Margot Robbie's head, at the, as the shared act, is just the kind of it's it's super effective um to use a pokemon term and um i think that like this is what's so special to me about music in films that that a performance on screen can be cool and it can be very moving and it can be powerful in a very literal and obvious way but an editorial moment where music is commenting on the interiority of a character can be uh like nuclear grade like emotional material it can just be so cellular and so foundational that it feels like you are feeling these feelings um i just think that that's hard to compete with and i think that that i'm really less cynical about this than the song that I am about, frankly, the movie as a whole, I, I walked away from Barbie not feeling super great about a lot of things. Um, I loved it, but I also like felt very strange um, about what it was, what it was, the, the tools that it was using in its tool belt. Um, and I think that this song is probably the most, um, to me, it's the most like pure uh, like moment of the film. And I, I loved it. I thought it was awesome. You know, the way my brain works is that um, I'm now here's, here's how my cynicism is manifesting itself. I now wish that Billy and Phineas hadn't won for the James Bond song, because that year it could have gone to um, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, who's still lacking the Oscar for his EGOT and delivered some great songs for Encanto that year, because this song to me, is at a higher level than what they achieve with the Bond song, which is actually a very good Bond song. They very rarely get the Bond songs right. Yeah, and that was a good one. Um, so props for that. But um, this just so richly deserves it for all the reasons you guys are articulating. The word that Louis used that I was really resonating on was intimate. It is so intimate. And it's weird the way, in a good way, weird, the way Billy and Phineas found a way to express 
what little girls, I mean, if you watch the music video, this is what they're, what Billy is literally portraying, how little girls play with their dolls and what it says about their interiority. It even, to Louis's point, makes the whole blinkered consumerist premise of the movie mm-hmm. a little less evil, <laughs> for lack of a better word. Um, you know, it, it, the reason why I, this movie made over a billion dollars is that generations of girls have played with those dolls and used them as a conduit for their imagination. And that is what Billie Eilish is channeling with the lyrics of this song. I mean, as for, you know, Billie as awards magnet, um, I've been trying to figure out for a couple of years now, Billie Eilish pulled off something in 2020 that hadn't been pulled off since Christopher Cross in the early 80s, where she swept the top four prizes at the Grammys. Um, and she just keeps, they keep throwing Grammys at her. And I'm trying to figure out, knowing what I know very cynically about the Grammys and NARIS, the National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences and the way they vote, I'm trying to figure out what it is about Billie Eilish, that she is a very current pop star who makes hits, who somehow is legible to middle-aged people like us <laughs> and and to the average Recording Academy voter who frankly, make the three of us look like young whippersnappers. Um, and there's something about the way she sings. I, she sometimes reminds me of Billie Holiday and her phrasing and various great jazz vocalists. I hear Ella Fitzgerald in the way she sings. And the vocal on this is not virtuosic. It's whispery, but it is exactly right for the song. And I just think there's a reason why people keep relating to the music that she and Phineas keep putting out. So, you know... She's probably going to win the prize. And it's one of those situations where don't hate the player, hate the game or, you know, props because she played the game better than anybody and and won for a good reason. Yeah. Well, and I think it also is the degree, the Super Bowl just happened. The degree to which we're hungry for shared experiences, right? The degree to which culture has splintered large part based on the internet technology, really getting a little tangential, but I'm bringing it back quick. And the degree, I think that all of us, like, I want there to be people that are making art at a high level in a way that everybody sort of looks at each other and says, like, I like this. I want this to be in my life. And it's getting harder and harder for people to occupy those spaces. And you, Billie Eilish is part of a very small community um, that is in that conversation. Although the question of even those people that are now at the top of the music industry, are they as pervasive? Are people aware of them across kind of culture the way people used to be of of pop stars in the 2000s, the 90s, the 80s, the 70s? But I think that in some ways that this question that you're bringing up, Chris, of over-awarded artists I can understand on the part of these bodies wanting to sort of say like, yeah, 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 we got one here. We got one here and we want to be associated with them. And this is what it is. And it is the same as, you know, Whitney Houston. And it is the same as Michael Jackson. And here she is. And we give her these awards and you see what's happening. Like there's a way in which it feels like different aspects of the system of sort of, uh creating art as commodity want to be able to say that there's still this relevance that is contained within these individual artists but it it can look really wonky especially when the landscape of how people engage with art has shifted as much as it has 
All right, gentlemen, any other film songs that caught your ear in 2023? Well, here's a technical point I wanted to make. About 15 years ago, they changed a rule in this category that only two songs per film are permitted. And that's important. That's very material this year because there was a pretty good chance that as many as three Barbie songs were going to wind up in this category. Um, that what that actually happened in the mid nineties. Uh, I believe the Lion King soundtrack generated three Oscar nominations that year. Hakuna Matata, Can You Feel the Love Tonight? And I think Just Can't Wait to Be King. Um, but that can't happen anymore. It's got to be two max. And there was a third Barbie song shortlisted, which was Dua Lipa's Dance the Night. Watch me dance, dance the night away. My heart could be burning, but you won't see it on my face. Watch me dance, dance the night away. Which was, I think I would have to go back through the chart data, was pretty much the biggest chart hit from Barbie. Um, there were people who griped and groused when the soundtrack came out that even for Dua Lipa, this song was kind of generic paint-by-numbers Dua Lipa, but... I think she kind of had the last laugh because it turned out to have the longest legs of any song from the soundtrack. It charted higher than the Billie Eilish song. It charted a little higher than the Nicki Minaj Barbie Girl remake. It was, you know, kind of a ubiquitous radio hit. And I'm not sure it needed to be in this category. I don't think it would have won if it had made the category, but um, I like Dua Lipa a lot. I think her material is consistently quite good. And... What I liked about the Barbie soundtrack in general, going back to something Louis said before, was that it really was a callback to the way soundtracks used to function for movies. And I'm not so much thinking of the Disney model here. I'm thinking more of what I'll call the Footloose model in the 80s or the City of Angels soundtrack in the 90s. It was basically a soundtrack that doubled as a hit jukebox. Um, and there was a real variety on there. You had everything from the you know, very heartfelt Billie Eilish song to the comical Ken song to another comical song by Lizzo to the banger by, you know, Nicki Minaj to this Dua Lipa track, which was just straight up pop. And uh, I don't mind that Barbie is kind of blanketing the category because I, I thought several of the songs were good. Yeah, you know, I guess um, I mentioned this earlier. We were talking about I'm Just Ken and a song that I felt like didn't get nominated, but had a very similar function in the film and I think was more effective at what it was doing is the Jack Black Peaches. Peaches, 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 peaches. Oh, yeah. A lot of people were surprised that didn't make the final five. Yeah. It's hard to imagine a world where that song wins a prestigious award. But the more I think about it, the more I think about what I'm Just Ken is being um, nominated for. Peaches kind of is more successful in at every turn um, of what it's doing in terms of taking a um classic want song in the in the music theater tradition and um making it explicit and laying out a pretty uh an extremely hooky 
and fun and self-referential performance. And then you add on top of it, the chops that Jack Black has and the pure just magnetism that I think Jack Black brings to every, um, every vocal performance that he does. I mean, he's truly a, a I think a, a genius. And again, it's hard to, to use terms like that with such a goofy song, but a lot of this, I mean, like I'm just Ken is super goofy anyway. And so like, if we're opening up the goof category, like let's just do it and let's give it to Jack Black for peaches. And this was from the Super Mario Brothers movie, right? Yes, this is from the Super Mario. But I think it's Peaches. It might be Peach. Um, anyway, it's it's in loop, on loop in my head constantly. And you know what I love about it is that it's pure. It's just pure Jack Black. And I think that anyone who's ever seen him just riff vocally over his what forty year career at this point. Um, it's very much a kind of culmination of all the things he does super well, which is a kind of uh, bombastic vocal performance and then like some very musical choices and then some funny kind of embodiment of the whatever animated character he's playing, which he did so well in Kung Fu Panda. And I just think it's it's like it's just really, really, really good vocal work. And the song is catchy um and uh silly and it's just kind of right down the middle and and it kind of gets me every time yeah and given all his years in tenacious d i mean he's really learned how to be a showman so um his chops are pretty serious yeah and also he came to singing super late i think he was in his 30s when he started making music um i guess it wouldn't be a 40-year career then but he was he was he came to the vocal thing late and i think that He's kind of the perfect example of of an actor who uses their their good ear to uh, pick up singing um, as a kind of secondary tool. Um, and you know, no no shade to Ryan Gosling. I think that vocal performance is fine, but but it's uh, if we're talking about actors who who dial it up and give a fun vocal performance. Uh, despite myself, I have to say that that I'm, I'm voting for Bowser, even though Bowser was not nominated. <laughs> one song that leapt off the screen to me uh from uh, spider-man across the spider-verse when i saw it was the song am i dreaming uh by metro boomin asap rocky and uh Royce. Metro Boomin curated the entire Spider-Man soundtrack this last year, and I thought he did a very uh, expert job. And this song in particular, I'm, I like that this was the one that got shortlisted because it, it was the one that jumped out at me when I was watching the movie. I was like, oh, what is that? It, it makes ample use of a string sample that is just ridiculously catchy and enveloping and... Um, I wanted to hear it again. I, th I think I dialed it up on my Spotify right after I walked out of the theater because uh, I wanted to hear it again. Tom, you got something in this cat? You something you want to throw in here? Something that's caught your ear? Let's see. Right, I'm not sure that I have uh, anything as eloquent to say about any songs that got left off. I'm just looking at the shortlist now, and the Sharon Von Etten song from Past Lives got shortlisted. 
I guess I just want any opportunity I can find to say how much I loved that movie. I think Past Lives is incredible. You're here. Um, and I do remember that song being really powerful in the movie. So nothing uh, nothing with as much eloquence or as feeling, but as much feeling as what you guys just said. But I will say that um, I really like that song and Past Lives is just so good. One more thing I'll throw into the mix because it kind of underperformed in the nominations, which is a bit of a pity, was The Color Purple, which of course is a musical. It's you know a bit of a head trip because you're talking about the Alice Walker novel that was turned into the 1985 Steven Spielberg movie, which then became a, mu a Broadway musical in the aughts. And then that Broadway musical was turned back into a movie in 2023. Um, there were two songs shortlisted uh, from the movie that were new songs, Fantasia's Superpower and... Uh, Hallie and Felicia Pearl Mapasi's uh, Keep It Moving. Every day the sun don't shine, but oh, keep it moving, keep it moving. It's up to you the way you choose to go. Keep it moving, keep it moving. Nothing's gonna take Fantasia's the better vocalist. She's an amazing vocalist, but I have to say between the two songs, the one I really loved was Keep It Moving, uh, which was a wonderful up-tempo number and I could have pictured it being uh, so energetic performed on Oscar night. So it's kind of a pity that it didn't make the final five. Well, we're going to get the performances we're going to get. We'll have to see how these five play out on Oscar night. Always look forward to this episode. Really appreciate you guys being here on that note. We're going to call it a wrap. Thanks guys. Yeah. Thank Thanks you so much. Skip. Thanks a lot, Skip. Listeners. I always appreciate your feedback. You'll find my contact info at our website below the line. One word dot biz. That's B I Z. One more Oscar episode in the queue. If you're a regular listener and you've been keeping track at home, you may ask yourself, what category is left? Well, that'll be a surprise. Come back in three days. Closing credits, thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Juan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. To all of our listeners, I appreciate you. Please rate us wherever you get your podcast and tell your friends. Thanks again from Below the Line. You know, Tom, you're drinking out of a mug. That would look really good as a Below the Line mug there, so you should look into that that would look really great in your hand i certainly will redbubble.com you said <laughs> thanks guys <laughs>